Blog Talk Radio. Five nine five two one one eight. 
I'll repeat that. 646-595-2118. And I will be the one answering the phone. Since we don't have a guest tonight, I thought I would share a book that has helped a lot of adult survivors of child abuse. It was written by Alice Miller, and it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child, The Search for the True Self. And it's about people who survived child abuse. And so since no one is calling yet, I'm going to go ahead and begin this reading. This is Chapter 1, The Drama of the Gifted Child and How We Became Psychotherapists. Experience has taught us that we have only one enduring weapon in our struggle against mental illness, the emotional discovery of the truth about the unique history of our childhood. Is it possible then to free ourselves altogether from illusions? History demonstrates that they sneak in everywhere that every life is full of them, perhaps because the truth often seems unbearable to us. And yet the truth is so essential that its loss exacts a heavy toll in the form of grave illness. In order to become whole, we must try in a long process to discover our own personal truth a truth that may cause pain before giving us a new sphere of freedom. If we choose instead to content ourselves with intellectual wisdom, we will remain in the sphere of illusion and self-deception. The damage done to us during our childhood cannot be undone since we cannot change anything in our past. We can, however, change ourselves. We can repair ourselves and gain our lost integrity by choosing to look more closely at the knowledge that is stored inside our bodies and bringing this knowledge closer to our awareness. This path, although certainly not easy, is the only route by which we can at least leave behind the cruel, invisible prison of our childhood. We become free by transforming ourselves from unaware victims of the past into responsible individuals in the present who are aware of our past and are thus able to live with it. And I'll stop there and welcome Philip in. Oh, Annie. Hi, Philip. How are you this evening? Pretty good. I just got down to the laundromat. You're at the laundromat now? I just got down to the laundromat. Oh, you just got down there. Okay, great. Well, did you hear that I'm going to be reading a book tonight since we don't have a co-host? Well, that's kind of what I guess because I heard you reading something. Yes. Um, It's called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. 
And I'm wondering if you have any comments on what you've heard so far. I like it. Okay, great. Great. And so I'm going to go ahead and continue reading, unless you have a question or anything you want to say, Philip. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. I'm doing very fine. The rain finally stopped here where I am. We had nothing but rain for a week. But now, today, it's a lovely day. Cold, but beautiful. I'm in, okay, I'm in Los good. Angeles. You probably saw so on TV I'm, that. Yeah? I'm like an hour away from Los Angeles. Oh, you are? What so town had, are you in? Um, and the Antelope Valley, Leona Valley. Leona Valley is an hour away from, from, what, from Los Angeles. It's called Leona Valley. All right. I've never been there, I don't think. Well... Welcome. Maybe someday we'll run into each other cause, since we're not too far away. Yeah. That'd be nice. It was yeah. raining here, too. A lot. Was it, did you have a whole yeah. week of floods? Yeah. Yeah, my backyard was underwater about three inches. But luckily, the house is up above the backyard, so it didn't get, it didn't get flooded. But the garage did. Oh, well. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'll go on with the reading. Most people do the exact opposite, the opposite of uh, living with their past, without realizing that the past is constantly determining their present actions. They avoid learning anything about their history. They continue to live in their repressed childhood situation, ignoring the fact that it no longer exists. They are continuing to fear and avoid dangers that, although once real, have not been real for a long time. They are driven by unconscious memories and by repressed feelings and needs that, in a perverse manner, determine nearly everything we do or fail to do. The repression of brutal abuse experienced during childhood drives many people to destroy their lives and the lives of others. In an unconscious thirst for revenge, they may engage in acts of violence, burning homes and businesses, physically attacking other people, using this destruction to hide the truth from themselves and avoid feeling the despair of the tormented child they once were. Such acts are often done in the name of patriotism or religious beliefs. Other people actively continue the torture one once inflicted upon them in self-scourging behaviors of every sort and in sadomasochistic practices. They think of such activities as liberation. One need not doubt the truth of the statements because people had to learn very early in life not to feel pain. Today they would go to any length not to feel the pain of the little girl who was once sexually exploited by her father. Repressed pain may reveal itself more privately as 
as in a woman who was sexually exploited as a child, who has denied her childhood reality, and in order not to feel the pain, is perpetually fleeing her past with the help of men, alcohol, drugs, or achievement. She needs a constant thrill to keep boredom at bay. Not even one moment of quiet can be permitted during which the burning loneliness of her childhood experience might be felt. For she fears that feeling more than death. She will continue in her flight unless she learns that the awareness of old feelings is not deadly, but liberating. What often does kill is the rejection of those feelings, the conscious experience of which could reveal the truth. And I'll stop there and comment on, from my own personal standpoint on, on what I just read. Um, it's true about me. I was sexually abused as a child and by my father and I I did try to flee the memories of that using men and alcohol and drugs and achievement all of them I did all of them and um, I don't do that anymore because now I I talk about it I know yeah I was I was abused assaulted is the new thing we say we don't say abused anymore we say assaulted because that's what it was um, by my father, who is now deceased, and I'm glad of that. And it took me many years, many years, to get to the point where I could speak publicly about the child abuse. Um, I was I was a total hermit, and I didn't have any friends, and I just hid in my house for years. But working on this, doing what she's saying, talking about it, bringing it to my own consciousness, that's what's helped heal me. Did you want to comment, Philip? Well, I'm enjoying the reading. It's setting me free. Okay, great. Thank you. I'll go on with the reading. Let me tell the phone number again for anyone who'd like to call us. That's 646 595 2118. And do give us a call and, and participate in our conversation tonight. Back to the reading. The repression of childhood pain influences not only the life of an individual, but also the taboos of the whole society. The usual run of biographies illustrates this very clearly. In reading the biographies of famous artists, for example, one gains the impression that their lives began on, at puberty. Before that, we are told they had a happy, contented, or untroubled childhood, or one that was full of deprivation or very stimulating. But what a particular childhood really was like does not seem to interest these biographers, as if the roots of a whole life were not hidden and entwined in its childhood. I should like to illustrate this with a simple example. 
Henry Moore describes in his memoirs how, as a small boy, he massaged his brother's back, his mother's back with an oil to soothe her rheumatism. Reading this suddenly grew light through light for me on Moore's sculptures, the great reclining women with the tiny heads. I could now see in them the mother through the small boy's eyes with the head high above in diminishing perspective and the back close before him and enormously enlarged. This interpretation may be irrelevant for many art critics, but for me it demonstrates how strongly a child's experiences may endure in his unconscious and what possibilities of expression they may awaken in the adult who is free to give them rain. Now, Moore's memory did not concern a traumatic event and so could survive intact. But every childhood's traumatic experiences remain hidden and locked in darkness. And the key to our understanding of the life that follows is hidden away with them. And I'll, I'll make another comment here for myself. I'm Annie. And um, my traumatic experiences did remain hidden for years. I, when I was about in fifth grade, I had a, a mental breakdown where I became delusional and had compulsive hand washing. And I couldn't go to school for like a year. I, I was really sick. And... Um, when I came out of that and started going back to school, I had forgotten the abuse. I did not remember that my dad had been abusing me for years. It went out of my mind. It's like I blocked it. I couldn't deal with it, so I blocked it. And my memories of that didn't come back for years. I was always messed up by it in that my my behaviors and my my thinking were all messed up. I hated myself and I didn't know why. But the, the specific memories were gone until I was, you know, I don't know, late 40s or something, and someone else started talking about the abuse in my family. And it all came back just like that, all came back. And I, oh, my goodness, how could I have lived without being aware of this. It was pretty amazing, really, that the brain can do that. And so that's what she was talking about there, that traumatic experience remain hidden and locked in darkness. Philip, would you like to comment? Um, no, not at this time. Okay, great. I'll, I'll go on with the reading. This The subtitle is The Poor Rich child. I sometimes ask myself whether it will ever be possible for us to grasp the extent of the loneliness and desertion to which we were exposed as children. Here I do not mean to speak primarily of children who were obviously uncared for or totally neglected and who were always aware of this or at least grew up with the knowledge that it was so. Apart from these extreme cases, there are large numbers of people who enter, enter therapy 
in the belief that their childhood was happy and protected. Quite often I have been faced with people who were praised and admired for their talents and achievements, who were toilet trained in the first year of their lives, and who may even at the age of one and a half to five have capably helped to take care of their younger siblings. According to prevailing attitudes to these people, the pride of their parents should have had a strong and stable sense of self-assurance. But the case is exactly the opposite. They do well, even excellently, in everything they undertake. They are admired and envied. They are successful whenever they care to be. But behind all this lurks depression, a feeling of emptiness and self-alienation, and a sense that their life has no meaning. These dark feelings will come to the fore as soon as the drug of grandiosity fails, as soon as they are not on top, not definitely the superstar, or whenever they suddenly get the feeling they have failed to live up to some ideal image or have not measured up to some standard. Then they are plagued by anxiety or deep feelings of guilt and shame. What are the reasons for such disturbances in these competent, accomplished people. In the very first interview, they will let the listener know that they have had understanding parents, or at least one, and if they are aware of having been misunderstood as children, they feel that the fault lay with them and with their inability to express themselves. They recount their earliest memories without any sympathy for the child they once were. And this is the more striking, as these patients not only have a pronounced introspective ability, but seem to some degree to be able to empathize with other people. Their access to the emotional world of their own childhood, however, is impaired, characterized by a lack of respect compulsion to control and manipulate, and the demand for achievement. Very often, they show disdain and irony and even derision and cynicism for the child they were. In general, there is a complete absence of real emotional understanding or serious appreciation of their own childhood vicissitudes, and no conception of their true needs beyond the desire for achievement. The repression of their real history has been so complete that their illusion of a good childhood can be maintained with ease. And um, I'll just say that I totally identify with the desire for achievement. Um, As a child, really most of my life, I... I had to be the number one in the class. I had to have straight A's. I had to be perfect. And, um, yeah, that's apparently very common among children who are assaulted. 
As a basis for description of the psychic climate of these persons, some general assumptions should be made clear. The child has a primary need from the very beginning of her life to be regarded and respected as the person she really is at any given time. When we speak here of the person she really is at any given time, we mean emotions, sensations, and their expression from the first day onward. In an atmosphere of respect and tolerance for her feelings, the child, in a phase of separation, will be able to give up symbiosis with the mother and accomplish the steps toward individuation and autonomy. If they are to furnish these prerequisites for the healthy development of their child, the parents themselves ought to have grown up in such an atmosphere. If they did, they will be able to assure the child the protection and well-being she needs to develop trust. But parents who did not experience this climate as children are themselves deprived. Throughout their lives, they will continue to look for what their own parents could not give them at the appropriate time. The presence of a person who is completely aware of them and takes them seriously. This search, of course, can never fully succeed since it relates to a situation that belongs irrevocably to the past, namely to the time after birth and during early childhood. A person with this unsatisfied and unconscious repressed need will nevertheless be compelled to attempt its gratification through substitute means as long as she ignores her repressed life history. The most efficacious objects for substitute gratification are a parent's own children. The newborn baby or small child is completely dependent on its parents, and since their caring is essential for his existence, he does all he can to avoid losing them. From the very first day onward, he will muster all his resources to this end, like a small plant that turns to the sun in order to survive. In my work with people in the helping preventions, I'm sorry, professions, I have often been confronted with the childhood history which seems significant to me. And then she gives a couple histories. There was a mother who at the core was emotionally insecure and who depended for her equilibrium on her child's behaving in a particular way. This mother was able to hide her insecurity from her child and everyone else behind a hard, authoritarian, even totalitarian facade. This child had an amazing ability to perceive and respond intuitively 
unconsciously to this need of the mother or both parents for him to take on the role that had unconsciously been assigned to him. This role secured love for the child, that is, his parents' exploitation. He could sense that he was needed, and this need guaranteed him a measure of existential security. I'll stop there for a moment and give out the phone number again. Of anyone who's listening is welcome to call in and comment on the reading, ask questions, tell your story. Um, you're welcome. The phone number is 646-595-2118. And join Philip and I here on the radio. I'll continue with the reading. This ability is then extended and perfected. Later, these children not only become mothers, confidants, comforters, advisors, supporters of their own mothers, but also take over at least part of the responsibility for their siblings and eventually develop a special sensitivity to unconscious signals manifesting the needs of others. No wonder they often choose to become psychotherapists later on. Who else, without this previous history, would mother sufficient interest to spend the whole day trying to discover what is happening in other people's unconscious? But the development and perfecting of this sensitivity, which once assisted the child in surviving, and now enables the adult to pursue his strange profession, also contain the roots of his emotional disturbance. As long as the therapist is not aware of his own repression, it can compel him to use his patients to, who depend on him to meet his unmet needs with substitutes. And then it's a new section, so I'll stop there for a moment. Hey, Philip, would you like to make any comments or ask a question? Um, no, thank you, Miss Annie. Okay, great. Well, the next section is called The Lost World of Feelings. And again, I'll tell you the title in case you didn't hear it at the beginning. The title of the book I'm reading is The Drama of the Gifted Child. The Search for the True Self, and it's written by Alice Miller. The Lost World of Feelings. On the basis of my experience, I think that the cause of an emotional disturbance is to be found in the infant's early adaptation. The child's needs for respect, echoing, understanding, sympathy, and mirroring have had to be repressed with several serious consequences. One such consequence is the person's inability to experience consciously certain feelings of his own, such as jealousy, envy, anger, loneliness, helplessness, 
or anxiety, either in childhood or later in adulthood. This is all the more tragic in that we are concerned here with lively people who are often capable of deep feelings. It is most noticeable when they describe childhood experiences that were free of pain and fear. They could enjoy their encounters with nature, for example, without hurting the mother or making her feel insecure, reducing her power or endangering her equilibrium. It is remarkable how these attentive, lively, and sensitive children who can, for example, remember exactly how they discovered the sunlight in bright grass at the age of four. At eight, were unable to notice anything or show any curiosity about their pregnant mother or were not at all jealous at the birth of a sibling. It is also remarkable how at the age of two, such a child could be left alone and be good while soldiers forced their way into the house and search it, suffering the terrifying intrusion quietly and without crying. These people have all developed the art of not experiencing feelings. For a child can experience her feelings only when there is somebody there who accepts her fully, who understands her and supports her. If that person is missing, if the child must risk losing the mother's love or the love of her substitute in order to feel, then she will repress her emotions. She cannot even experience them secretly just for herself. She will fail to experience them at all. But they will nevertheless stay in her body, in her cells, stored up as information that can be triggered by a later event. And I'll stop there for a second and comment. This is Annie. And... um, about repressing my emotions. It was not okay to cry in my family. No crying. And if you cried, you just got worse and worse. You had to stop crying. You had to repress that. And anger, you could never show anger. And so when my mother, who was a hysterical screamer, would yell at me, I just had to stand there with no emotions and just take it. No anger, no fear. No sadness, nothing. I had to just turn myself into an unfeeling rock. And that's what I did. And that's uh, that's quite a talent to not feel, you know, to turn off your feelings. And I continued to do that in my adulthood. I don't think I do it anymore. I'll have to watch myself and see if I ever turn into a stone when... Emotions are coming up. I don't think I do. We'll see. Okay. Um, Throughout their later life, these people will have to deal with situations in which these rudimentary feelings may awaken. 
but without the original connection ever becoming clear. The connection can be deciphered only when the intense emotions have been experienced and successfully linked with their original situation. Take, for example, the feeling of abandonment. Not that of the adult who feels lonely and therefore turns to alcohol or drugs, goes to the movies, visits friends, or makes unnecessary telephone calls in order to bridge the gap somehow. No, I mean the original feeling in the small infant who had none of these means of distraction and whose communication, verbal or preverbal, did not reach the mother because his mother herself was deprived. For her part, she was dependent on a specific echo from the child that was essential to her, for she herself was a child in search of a person who could be available to her. However paradoxical this may seem, a child is at the mother's disposal. The mother can feel herself the center of attention, for her, eye, her child's eyes follow her everywhere. A child cannot run away from her, as her own mother once did. A child can be brought up so that it becomes what she wants it to be. A child can be made to show respect. She can even impose her own feelings on a child, see herself mirrored in his love and admiration, and feel strong in his presence. But when he becomes too much, she can abandon that child to a stranger or to solitary confinement in another room. When a woman has had to repress all these needs in relation to her own mother, they will arise from the depth of her unconscious and seek gratification through her own child, however well-educated she may be. The child feels this clearly and very soon foregoes the expression of his own distress. Later, when these feelings of being deserted began to emerge in the therapy of the adult, they are accompanied by intense pain and despair. It is clear that these people could not have survived so much pain as children. That would have been possible only in an empathetic, attentive environment, which was lacking. Thus, all feelings had to be warded off. But to say that feelings were absent would be a denial of the empirical evidence. I'll stop for a moment and have a sip of my coffee. Philip, do you have anything to say? Um, I have to go now, so good night. Um, I'm sorry, Philip, would you repeat that? I have to go, so good night. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye, then. Goodbye, Annie. Okay.
Well, I hope some more people will call in. Um, I'll repeat the, the phone number to call. It's 646-595-2118. And this is SCAN radio show number 3374. SCAN stands for Stop Child Abuse Now. And I'm Annie Marcus, and I'm reading from the book The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. And I will continue to read. Uh-oh, where am I? Okay, here I am. Several mechanisms can be recognized in the defense against early feelings of abandonment. In addition to simple denial, we usually find the exhausting struggle to fulfill the old, repressed, and by now often perverted needs with the help of symbols, cults, sexual perversions, groups, alcohol, or drugs. Intellectualization is very often commonly encountered as well, since it is a defense mechanism of great power. It can have disastrous results, however, when the mind ignores the vital messages of the body. All these defense mechanisms are accompanied by the repression of the original situation and the emotions belonging to it. Accommodation to parental needs often, but not always, leads to the as-if personality. This person develops in such a way that he reveals only what is expected of him and fuses so completely with what he reveals that one could scarcely guess how much more there is to him behind this false self. He cannot develop and differentiate his true self because he is unable to live it. Understandably, this person will complain of a sense of emptiness, futility, or homelessness, for the emptiness is real. A process of emptying impoverishment, and crippling of his potential actually took place. The integrity of the child was injured when all that was alive and spontaneous in him was cut off. In childhood, these patients often had dreams in which they experienced themselves as at least partly dead. And I'm going to stop there and just share that I have had those dreams of being dead or of dying. And I never related them to child abuse. I just I just had them. I never related to why I would have had them. And it's interesting that, that it could be what, because I was assaulted as a child. And um, the process of crippling my potential took place, yeah, because I am now what I I think is my normal self, my true my true self. After many years in recovery from child abuse, but my whole life 
I didn't have any friends. I never performed because I wanted to perform. I wanted to perform the writing that I wrote, and I also wanted to perform plays. I wanted to be in plays, and I wanted to sing publicly, and and I wanted to wear period costumes. All these things that were me were were shoved down. I couldn't do any of them, and um, it would be like... I would be acting like a fool if I did any of that. You know, in in my mind, those things were stupid and I just needed to be quiet and not do anything, which is really sad. I'm I'm sad when I think that, that I, I was denied the happiness that those activities would have brought me because my potential was crippled. Okay. I'll I'll continue the reading. A young woman, Lisa, reported a recurrent dream. My younger siblings are standing on a bridge and they throw a box into the river. I know that I am lying in it, dead. And yet I hear my heart beating. At this moment, I always wake up. This dream combined her unconscious rage toward her younger siblings, for whom Lisa always had to be a loving, caring mother, with killing her own feelings, wishes, and demands. A young man named Bob dreams this. I see a green meadow on which there is a white coffin. I am afraid that my mother is in it. But I open the lid, and luckily it is not my mother, but me. If Bob had been able as a child to express his disappointment with his mother, to experience his rage and anger, he could have stayed fully alive. But that would have led to the loss of his mother's love, and that for a child can mean the same as death. So he killed his anger, and with it, a part of himself, in order to preserve the love of his mother. A young girl used to dream, I'm lying on a bed, I'm dead. My parents are talking and looking at me, but they don't realize that I am dead. The difficulties inherent in feeling experiencing and developing one's own emotions lead to mutual dependency, which prevents individuation. Both parties have an interest in bond permanence. The parents have found in their child's false self the confirmation they were looking for, a substitute for their own missing security. The child who has been able to build up his own sense of security is first consciously, then unconsciously, dependent on his parents. He cannot rely on his own emotions, has not come to experience them through trial and error, has no sense of his own real needs, and is alienated from himself to the highest degree. 
Under these circumstances, he cannot separate from his parents. And even as an adult, he is still dependent on affirmation from his partner, from groups, and especially from his own children. The legacy of the parents is yet another generation condemned to hide from the true self while operating unconsciously under the influence of repressed memories. Unless the heir casts off his inheritance by becoming fully conscious of his true past and thus of his true nature, loneliness in the parental home will necessarily be followed by an adulthood lived in emotional isolation. And I'll stop there for a moment and say, wow, sounds like she's talking about me, that that I had an adulthood lived in emotional isolation. I totally did. I had no friends. And, and uh, yeah, total emotional isolation. And the only way I got out of it was to do what she says, cast off my inheritance by becoming fully conscious of my true past. Yeah, this person, Alice Miller, she's pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. I'm I'm not knowledgeable about her. I don't know if she is a survivor of child abuse. I would guess yes, because she's she's so um, so perceptive about about what uh, what we go through. I'm sorry, somebody keeps texting me. In search of the true self. How can therapy be of help? It cannot give us back our lost childhood. Nor can it change the past fact. No one can heal by maintaining or fostering illusion. The paradise of preambivalent harmony for which so many patients hope is unattainable. But the experience of one's own truth and the post-ambivalent knowledge of it make it possible to return to one's own world of feelings at an adult level. Without paradise, but with the ability to mourn. And this ability does indeed give us back our vitality. It is one of the turning points in therapy when a patient comes to the emotional insight that all the love she has captured with so much effort and so much self-denial was not meant for her as she really was that the admiration for her beauty and achievement was aimed at this beauty in these achievements and not at the child herself. In therapy, the small and lonely child that is hidden behind her achievements wakes up and asks, what would have happened if I had appeared before you sad, needy, angry, Curious, where would your love have been then? And I was all these things as well. Does that mean that it was not really me you loved, but only 
what I pretended to be? The well-behaved, reliable, empathetic, understanding, and convenient child who, in fact, was never a child at all. What became of my childhood? Have I not been cheated out of it? I can never return to it. I can never make up for it. From the beginning, I have been a little adult. These questions are accompanied by much grief and pain. But the result is always a new authority that is establishing itself in the patient, a new empathy with her own fate, born out of mourning. Now the patient does not make life of manifestations of herself anymore, does not so often laugh at or jeer at them, even if she still unconsciously passes them over or ignores them in the same subtle way that her parents dealt with the child before she had any words to express her needs. Even as an older child, she was not allowed to say or even think, I can be sad or happy whenever anything makes me sad or happy. I don't have to look cheerful for someone else. And I don't have to suppress my distress or anxiety to fit other people's needs. I can be angry and no one will die or get a headache because of it. I can rage when you hurt me without losing you. In the majority of cases, it is a great relief to a patient to see that she can now recognize and take seriously the things she used to choke off, even if the old patterns come back again and again over a long period. But now, she begins to understand that this strategy was her only chance to survive. Now she can realize how she still sometimes tries to persuade herself when she is scared that she is not scared. She belittles her feelings to protect herself and either does not become aware of them at all or does so only several days after they have already passed. Gradually, she realizes how she is forced to look for distraction when she is moved, upset, or sad. When a six-year-old's mother died, his aunt told him, You must be brave. Don't cry. Now, go to your room and play nicely. Once the therapeutic process has started, it will continue if it is not interrupted by interpretations or other types of intellectual defense. The suffering person begins to be articulate and breaks with her former compliant attitudes. But because of her early experience, she cannot believe she is not incurring mortal danger. She fears rejection and punishment when she defends her rights. The patient is surprised by feelings she would rather not have recognized. But now it is too late 
awareness of her own impulses has already been aroused and there is no going back. I'll stop there for a second and just do a little ID. This is Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Radio, show number 3374. And Stop Child Abuse Now is brought to you by NASCA, the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And their website is naasca.org, nasca.org. And this is... I'm sorry, my name is Annie Marges, and I'm your host tonight. And before I start reading again, I'm going to give out the phone number because we don't have any callers on the line right now. So I'd love to have you call and be part of the show and talk about the reading or talk about your own story. The phone number to call is 646-595-2118, 646 646- Five nine five two one one eight, and another sip of coffee. Excuse me. Okay, back to the reading. Now, the once intimidated and silenced child can experience her herself in a way she never before thought possible. And afterwards, she can enjoy the relief of having taken the risk and been true to herself. Whereas she had always despised despised miserliness, she suddenly catches herself counting up the two minutes lost to her session through a telephone call. Whereas she had previously never made demands herself and had always been tireless, in fulfilling the demands of others, now she is suddenly furious that her therapist is going on vacation. Or she is annoyed to see other people waiting outside. What can this be? Surely not jealousy. That is an emotion she does not know. And yet, what are they doing here? Do others besides me come here? She hadn't realized that before. At first it will be mortifying to see that she is not always good, understanding, tolerant, controlled, and above all, without needs, for these have been the basis of her self-respect. Through therapy, we came to understand that we are not always as guilty as we feel, nor as innocent as we would like to believe. How can we know what kind of damage we have inflicted on others, on our children, for instance, as long as our feelings is blocked, as long as we ignore our history? The confrontation with our own reality will help us give up the illusions that disguise our past. And if we then discover that we have hurt or damaged another person, we must apologize. 
This will make us free to resolve the old, unconscious, and unjustified feelings of guilt stemming from our childhood. We were not responsible for the cruelty inflicted on us, and yet we feel guilty. If we don't allow ourselves to recognize our wrongdoings in the present and take steps to correct them, we will not be able to resolve our unreal guilt feelings from the past. Many people continue to pass on the cruel deeds and attitudes to which they were subjected as children so that they can continue to idealize their parents. Psychologically, they remain small, small dependent children, even in old age. They don't understand that if they had been able to admit and experience early feelings, they would feel stronger and more coherent and would become more authentic and honest with themselves and others. I'm going to stop there. I have those sentences highlighted in my book because it's true. This is so true. When I was able to admit what had happened to me and experience the feelings over many years. I experienced the feelings by sharing my experience with other people who survived from child abuse. And um, after doing that, I felt stronger and more coherent and became more authentic and honest with myself. That totally happened. And so the, I recommend anybody listening, if you're, if you're suffering still, get in a group where you can tell your story to other people and have them listen silently. And, and listen to other people's stories, too, and, and see that you are not alone. We are not alone. Sadly, there are many of us. And being in a, peer, a peer-to-peer support group, as I was for for many years, that, I think, is what pulled me out of my severe depression and anxiety and and, uh, inability to function. Okay. I'll give the phone number again, 646-595-2118. And we still have a half hour, so please call in and be part of the show. I'll continue reading. There is a big difference between having ambivalent feelings towards someone as an adult and suddenly experiencing oneself as a two-year-old being fed by the maid in the kitchen and thinking in despair, why does mom go out every evening? Why does she not take pleasure in me? What is wrong with me? that she prefers to go to other people. What can I do to make her stay home? Just don't cry. Just don't cry. Peter, as a two-year-old child, could not have thought in these words. But in the therapeutic session where he experienced this reality, he was both an adult and a toddler and could cry bitterly. 
It was not a cathartic crying, but rather the integration of his earlier longing for his mother, which until now he had always denied. In the following weeks, Peter went through all assortments. No, I'm sorry. Peter went through all the torments of his ambivalence toward his mother, who was a successful pediatrician. Her previously frozen, idealized portrait melted into the picture of a woman who had not been able to give her child any continuity in their relationships. I hated those beasts who were constantly sick and always taking you away from me. I hated you because you preferred being with them to being with me. Feelings of helplessness were mingled with the long, dammed-up rage against the mother who had not been available to him when he needed her the most. As a result of becoming aware of these feelings, Peter could rid himself of a symptom that had tormented him for a long time. Its point was now easy to understand. His relationships to women changed as his compulsion first to conquer and then to desert them disappeared. People experienced, sorry, Peter. <clears throat> Peter experienced his early feelings of helplessness, of anger, and of being at the mercy of his mostly absent mother in a manner that he could not previously have remembered. One can only remember what has been consciously experienced. But the emotional world of a tormented child is itself the result of a selective process that has eliminated the most important element. These early feelings, joined with the pain of being unable to understand what is going on, which is part of the earliest period of childhood, are consciously experienced for the first time during therapy. It is like a miracle each time to see how much authenticity and integrity have survived behind dissimulation, denial, and self-alienation and how they can reappear as soon as the patient finds access to the feelings. Nevertheless, it would be wrong to imply that there is a fully developed true self consciously hidden behind the false self. The important point is that the child does not know what he is hiding. Carl, age 42, expressed this in the following way. I lived in a glass house into which my mother could look at any time. In a glass house, however, you cannot conceal anything without giving yourself away except by hiding it under the ground. And then you cannot see it yourself either. An adult can be fully aware of his feelings only if he had caring parents or caregivers. People who were abused and neglected in childhood are missing this capacity and therefore never overtaken by unexpected emotions. 
they will admit only those feelings that are accepted and approved by their inner censor, who is their parent's heir. Depression and the sense of inner emptiness are the price they must pay for this control. The true self cannot communicate because it has remained unconscious and therefore undeveloped in its inner prison. The company of prison warders does not encourage lively development. It is only after it is liberated that the self begins to articulate, to grow, to develop its creativity. Where there had only been fearful emptiness or equally frightening grandiose fantasies, an unexpected wealth of vitality is now discovered. This is not a homecoming since this home has never before existed. It is the creation of home. And that's the end of that section. We have 20 minutes left. I'll just identify the book again. I am reading The Drama of the Gifted Child, written by Alice Miller. And my name is Annie Marges, and you're listening to Stop Child Abuse Now, Scam, radio show number 3374. I'll return to the reading. The next section is called The Therapist's History. It is often said that psychotherapists suffer from an emotional disturbance. My purpose so far has been to clarify the extent to which the assertion can be shown to have a basis in experience. The therapist's sensibility, empathy, responsiveness, and powerful antenna indicate that as a child, he probably used to fulfill other people's needs and to repress his own. Wow, I just want to repeat that part because I totally did that. He probably used to fulfill other people's needs and to repress his own. I did that my whole life. I don't do it anymore. Back to the reading. Of course, there is the theoretical possibility that a sensitive child could have had parents who did not need to misuse him, parents who saw him as he really was, understood him and tolerated and respected his feelings. Although such a child would develop a healthy sense of security, one could hardly expect that he would later take up the profession of psychotherapy, that he would cultivate and develop his sensitivity to others to the same extent as those parents use them to gratify their own needs. And that he would never, I'm sorry, and that he would ever be able to understand sufficiently without the basis of experience. What it all means is to have killed oneself. I think that our childhood fate can indeed enable us to practice psychotherapy, but only if we have been given the chance through our own therapy to live with the reality of our past and to give up the most flagrant of our illusions. 
This means tolerating the knowledge that to avoid losing the love of our parents, we were compelled to gratify their unconscious needs at the cost of our own emotional development. It also means being able to experience the resentment and mourning aroused by our parents' failure to fulfill our primary needs. If we have never consciously lived through this despair and the resulting rage and have therefore never been able to work through it, we will be in danger of transferring this situation, which then would remain unconscious, onto our patients. It would not be surprising if our unconscious needs should find no better than to make use of a weaker person. Most readily available for exploitation are one's children or one's patients who at times are as obedient and dependent on their therapists as children are on their parents. A patient with antenna for his therapist's unconscious will for with antenna for his therapist, it must mean subconscious, will react promptly if he senses that it is important to his therapist to have patients who soon become autonomous and behave with self-confidence. He will quickly feel himself autonomous and react accordingly. He can do that. He can do anything that is expected of him. But because this autonomy is not genuine, it soon ends in depression. True autonomy is preceded by the experience of being dependent. True liberation can be found only beyond the deep ambivalence of infantile depression. Dependence, I'm sorry, infantile dependence. My brain's getting tired. We have 15 minutes left in the show, and you're still welcome to call uh, area code 646-595-2118. When he presents material that fits the therapist's knowledge, concepts, and skills, and therefore also his expectations, the patient satisfies his therapist's wish for approval, echo, understanding, and for being taken seriously. In this way, the therapist exercises the same sort of unconscious manipulation as that to which he was exposed as a child. A child can never see through unconscious manipulation. It is like the air he breathes. He knows no other, and it appears to him to be the only breathable air. What happens if we don't recognize the harmful quality of this air, even in adulthood. We will push this harm on to others while pretending that we are acting only for their own good. The extent of the damage we will do depends on our options. If we become novelists, for instance, we might vaguely sense the abyss of childhood suffering and might describe with some accuracy the parents' hypocrisy 
and their manipulation of the helpless being who is so dependent on them. If we were unaware of the full impact of such manipulation on ourselves and were perhaps even in denial of precisely what we were describing, then while we would not help our readers understand their past, we would at least not harm them either. Having decided to become therapists, however, we must not dispense with facing our own truth. If we do not recognize the harm of the manipulation to which we were subjected as children, we cannot avoid passing it on. A thorough awareness of our own past and a full understanding of its impact seem to me fundamental prerequisites to being able to help others effectively with their therapy. Unfortunately, we are very far from this standard, as can clearly be seen in the numerous fashionable, extremely manipulative therapy concepts appearing almost daily. The German magazine Der Spiegel reported that there are currently more than 500 therapies in Germany promising to make a a person happy and free of symptoms with the help of blatantly manipulative tricks and medications. Psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, and counselors are apparently fascinated with methods that that range from simple behavioral conditioning to neurolinguistic miracles. How is this possible? Why do they use these manipulative techniques so eagerly when they must suspect that their effectiveness is, at best, short-term? Don't they know that any effectiveness is tied to suggestion, that the strong transference the once-fooled child automatically makes onto the healer has nothing to do with real healing? Or do they just not know that healing, real healing, is indeed possible? The parents of these professionals did not waste time with reflection either. They followed the well-worn path taken by their own parents. They didn't want their child to be a person with his or her own needs. They simply wanted a good boy or a nice girl, and they managed to get what they wanted. But if those good boys and nice girls later became therapists or counselors, it is essential that they not go on unconsciously doing to others what their parents did to them while pretending to be making them happy. They must realize the price they had to pay for their happiness, namely the denial of their own needs, their true, their own true personality, and their unique history. If they can discover that they were once fooled, consciously or unconsciously, the effect is the same, and exactly how this fooling was done, 
They will no longer want to make others happy by tricking them. The more insight I gain into the unconscious manipulation of children by their parents and the, parent, and the patients by their therapists, the more urgent it seems to me that we resolve our repression, not only as parents, but also as therapists. We must be willing to face our history. We must be able to feel and clarify our feelings, to understand their old and recent causes in order to integrate our past experiences. We will then no longer have any need to manipulate our patients but can allow them to become what they really are. Only after painfully experiencing and accepting our own truth can we be free from the hope that we might still find an understanding, empathetic parent, perhaps in the patient, who will be at our disposal. This temptation to seek a parent among our patients should not be over—I'm sorry—underestimated. Our own parents seldom or never listen to us with such rapt attention as our patients usually do, and they never reveal their inner world to us as clearly and honestly as do our patients. Only the never-ending work of mourning can help us from lapsing into the illusion that we have found the parent we once urgently needed, empathetic and open, understanding and understandable, honest and available, helpful and loving, feeling, transparent, clear, without unintelligible contradictions. Such a parent was never ours. For a mother can react emphatically only to the extent that she has become free of her own childhood. When she denies the vicissitudes of her early life, she wears invisible chains. Children who are intelligent, alert, attentive, sensitive, and completely attuned to their mother's well-being are entirely at her disposal. Transparent, clear, and reliable, they are easy to manipulate as long as their true self, their emotional world, remains in the cellar of the glass home in which they have to live. Sometimes until puberty or until they come to therapy and very often until they have become parents themselves. Robert, now 31, could never be sad or cry as a child without being aware that he was making his beloved mother unhappy and very unsure of herself. The extremely sensitive child felt himself warded off by his mother who had been in a concentration camp as a child but had never spoken about it. Not until her son was grown up and could ask her questions did she tell him that she had been one of 80 children 
who had had to watch their parents going into the gas chamber and that not one child had cried because cheerfulness was the trait that had saved her life in childhood, her own children's tears threatened the equilibrium. Throughout his childhood, this son had tried to be cheerful. He could express glimpses of his true self and his feelings only in obsessive perversions which seemed alien, shameful, and incomprehensible to him until he began to grasp their real meaning. One is totally defenseless against this sort of manipulation in childhood. The tragedy is that the parents, too, have no defense against it, as long as they refuse to face their own history. If the repression stays unresolved, the parents' childhood tragedy is unconsciously continued on in their children. Another example may illustrate this more clearly. A father who as a child had often been frightened by the anxiety attacks of his periodically schizophrenic mother and was never given an explanation enjoyed telling his beloved small daughter gruesome stories. He always laughed at her fears and afterward comforted her with the words, but it is only a made-up story. You don't need to be scared. You are here with me. In this way, he could manipulate his child's fear and have the feeling of being strong. His conscious wish was to give the child something valuable of himself, of which, of which he had been deprived, namely protection, comfort, and explanations. But what he unconsciously handed on was his own childhood fear, the expectation of disaster. And the unanswered question, also from childhood, why does this person I love frighten me so much? Probably everybody has a more or less concealed inner chamber that hides that she hides even from herself and in which the props of her childhood drama are to be found. Those who we will be the most affected by the contents of this hidden chamber are her children. When the mother was a child, she hardly had a chance to understand what happened. She could only develop symptoms. As an adult in therapy, however, she can resolve these symptoms if she allows herself to feel what they were able to disguise, feelings of horror, indignation, despair, and helpless rage. And I think I'm going to stop there because we have a little less than two minutes left on the radio show tonight. And I'll just identify the book again that I've been reading from. It's The Drama of the Gifted Child, The Search for the True Self, written by Alice Miller. And you are listening to the radio show Stop child abuse now scan 
radio show number 3374. And this radio show is brought to you by NASPA, the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse.org. NASPA, sorry, NASPA.org, N-A-A-S-C-A.org. Please go to the website and, and see all, all of the uh, wonderfully supportive information that they have on that website. Um, thank you for being listeners tonight, and I will uh, I will be here again two weeks from now on a Thursday. Okay, here's the song. <laughs> That shows not to run.